a few times of eating sugar in some form and experiencing the change in how they feel, they make the connection. And now it's something that they really want. Who would not want to repeat the behavior that takes them from feeling worse than normal to feeling terrific? Did you finally realize your dream of having a family only to have your happily ever after turn into a nightmare? Do you find yourself up late at night wondering why nothing you try as a parent is working? Are you searching for adoption resources and a support team but can't find any? Hi neighbor, welcome to Anchors of Encouragement. I'm Tim Moglin, husband, adoptive parent, Bible class teacher, and the persistent encourager. I too felt the joy of having a family of my own and I wished we could be like other adoptive families. I knew we were doing our best, but nothing seemed to work. And I kept asking myself, why is this happening to us? In Anchors of Encouragement, my mission is to throw adoptive parents a lifeline and be your anchor, to offer biblical mindset support and to provide stability when life gets unstable. If you're ready for real and raw talk that leads to peace beyond comprehension, so you not only survive but thrive in life's storms, this podcast is for you. Hope and healing are on the way. Hi, neighbor. I want to welcome you to today's episode. I have a special treat for you. On this episode, I have my friend, Dr. Joan Kent, with me. She is going to share some information that I believe will be rather eye-opening for you when we consider the aspect of adoption and specifically adoption trauma. Now, I've dealt with that topic in previous episodes. Specifically, if you look at episodes 8 and 9, where I had Jane Baker. She's a a therapist. She is the expert as far as adoption trauma and how to understand it. What Joan is going to do for us today is going to show how one particular thing that is common for or common in every household, how that thing can be a trigger to someone who has adoption trauma tendencies in their life. Now, before uh, Joan comes on, let me read her bio for you. So you know that she, this person knows what she's talking about. Dr. Joan Kent has a PhD in psychoactive nutrition. She was the very first to document the brain chemical pathways of sugar addiction and to explain the sugar fat seesaw hormonally and chemically. Joan has helped hundreds and hundreds of clients with metabolic conditions, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and cancer, as well as with inflammation and mood issues. Joan, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to have you here and to to share your expertise with us. It's my pleasure, Tim. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get into what you want to to speak on with regards to uh, addiction and so forth, can you tell the audience why your interest in sugar and sugar addiction? I mean, is there something in your backstory that can help us understand why you took this path in your life? Absolutely. What I knew about myself, even at a very young age, was that I had, I had a more than um, interest, a bigger than normal interest in sugar, and um, I considered myself addicted to it. But this was so long ago that people didn't realize someone could be addicted to sugar. Now everyone's heard of it. They've thought about it. 
some people even go around saying, I think sugar is more addictive than cocaine, they, you know, whatever the saying is currently. But it it wasn't something anyone knew then. I used to talk about it and people would laugh at me or smirk as if I had just said something ridiculous. And I had, my, I guess my low point came when I'd been doing what I always did, you know, eating a lot of sugar, experiencing many colds, you know, catching cold several times per year, um, going through mood swings, all of these things is normal uh, for me, normal. And then I left work one day at around five o'clock and I had eaten some sugar at around, let's say, 3.30 or 4. And I was on the freeway. And I, and I ended up falling asleep at the wheel. Now it wasn't a deep sleep and it didn't last for a long time, but you know, when you're moving at freeway speeds, it doesn't take a long time for something to be a disaster. And just those few moments of closing my eyes, um, I ended up, I don't, you know, I don't want to describe the details because I simply don't want to relive it. But let me say that I hit into the guardrail you think the guardrail may be on my left because I was a driving, but I actually spun around and I hit the guardrail from the other side. So like spinning in traffic, it is something of a miracle that no other cars were involved in this, but I did total my car and a policeman came up and asked me if I had been drinking. And I told him the truth. I said, I don't drink. And he still made me get out of the car and stand on one foot to prove that I was sober. And then he did that flashlight thing in my eyes to check for drug use. So I passed the tests, but this was a very, a very frightening and a very expensive lesson for me. And after that, I decided I was going to start figuring out exactly what was going on with me and sugar. And that's when I met someone who said, Joan, this is all you think about. It's all you talk about. It's all you read about. Why don't you do it for real and get a PhD? And I couldn't really argue against that. It made sense because I was truly obsessed with the topic at the time. I was, I was consuming every bit of information I could find, and there wasn't that much. I did get the PhD eventually that you described to everybody. And here we are. And that's an amazing story. Wow. I mean... You're fortunate to be alive, and I yes. couldn't. I don't understand how sugar can impact you that what to that degree. That's just incredible. I know in my own life, observing my son, and I've talked about him and how he has adoption trauma. I haven't mentioned this on the show yet, but before we sent him to residential treatment, he was addicted to sugar, and he would. He would eat spoonfuls of it. And we had to hide hide food from him because he would get a loaf of bread and eat a whole loaf of bread, which the carbs can turn into sugar, or we had to hide sugar from him. And when he went to residential treatment, after six months in treatment, he had lost 80 pounds because wow. they, had, they were monitoring him 24-7. And because they were doing that and able to do things we couldn't do at home, his sugar consumption reduced dramatically and it was just one of those things he dropped 80 pounds in six months and he looks so much better that's incredible i bet he feels a lot better as well yes that's the thing so 
with your background and then what I saw in my son, you know, I don't have the, the scientific expertise to speak to this. I can just tell you from observation what I saw happen in my son and saw how he how he was addicted to it. But I don't understand why he was addicted to it. I, I saw what it, what happened when he, he cut sugar out of his life. I've, I've seen what it can do as far as losing weight. But can you help us understand how a child that especially is going through adoption trauma, how sugar impacts them and, and why it's so serious? Yes. Let's talk about a few other things before we get into that, because I will, I will explain that. Um, there's a theory that I, I went um, into in depth in my dissertation. And I just, I, I just want to hold off for a couple of minutes on that, if it's okay with you. Oh, that's fine. I mean, you've done the research, so you, you paint the picture for us so we can understand it. That's why I have you on here, because I want you to explain this to us. So go right ahead. Okay, well, first of all, I'm very excited about this. And I've been excited ever since you approached me and told me you wanted to talk about this topic of adoption, trauma, and sugar addiction. I've done uh, some research on it because the one thing I absolutely am not is an expert on adoption trauma. And as you've pointed out, listeners can get that information at, uh, from some of your other podcasts. I think it's exciting that we are expanding. When I read through the information available, what they made clear is that they felt that children go through trauma right? Trauma can be in many forms. It can be emotional, physical, sexual abuse, violence that occurs in school or domestic violence that they experience could be all kinds of things, but that child goes through trauma and then later develops an addiction. And there's a very strong link in that. And there's a lot of research that has been done on that link. But uh, what we're doing today is is adding to that list of traumatic situations and saying adoption trauma can do that. And as you pointed out, the adoption trauma can occur right at birth or within a few months, you know, during infancy. So we're really expanding the topic of trauma here and then looking at the addiction. The way it is in the literature that I was reading, uh, the grown child may become addicted to alcohol or may become addicted to some other drugs. What's also true is that that child can become, that grown child can become addicted to sugar. But there's another dimension in this because the addiction can manifest at a much younger age. When you're talking about a grown child, you're looking at things that a very small child, an infant doesn't have access to. Obviously, we're hoping no children have access to alcohol or drugs. All children have access to sugar. It's around everywhere. And in this country, it's really around everywhere. So um, the addiction can manifest at a very young age, and it can start affecting the child's behavior on a number of different ways. And I'll give you just one example. You might see a child uh, crying because she wants cookies. And mom has just said, no, you can't have cookies. Now we're going to have dinner. And then you, maybe you can have cookies for dessert, that kind of thing. But the child is thinking in the here and now, and the child is experiencing whatever she's experiencing. This is not about girls or boys. It's just, you know, I'm just saying she right now, uh, whatever she's experiencing, 
right here and now. And what she might be experiencing is withdrawal. Maybe she's addicted to this and she's going through withdrawal symptoms that can include, but not be limited to, serious cravings for the sugar. So here's this little kid who has very little control over this, and she's being told she can't have what she's craving and what withdrawal symptoms are making her want very, very strongly. And so she starts crying or throwing a little tantrum and people start saying she's acting out or she's acting like a brat or whatever, you know, whatever people say about kids who are behaving this way. And maybe what no one realizes is she's just going through what someone who has no power over this aspect of her life is experiencing in the form of uh, withdrawal from sugar. The addiction can occur at a much younger age than the literature talks about because it's, we're now talking about a substance that's readily available and it can, it can end up affecting the child's behavior and moods and all of that at a very young age. That's fascinating because you typically think of withdrawal coming from drugs. It's even obvious when a birth mother has abused drugs or alcohol that the child could be born with those addictions. I mean, we all understand that. But to think that it could manifest itself with sugar, that's just hard for me to process. You say that the science is, is showing that that's the, indeed the case. Well, yes, it is. And so this is another way that we're expanding it. You know, we're saying we're saying that trauma can uh, include adoption trauma and grown children can get addicted to uh, not just what the literature shows of alcohol and drugs, but also sugar. And now saying that little kids can get addicted to sugar. So it's expanding into a much younger age group. But now let's talk about what this is. Because my research, my doctoral research shows that certain, let me just say certain individuals right now, because it can be children and it can be adults, but certain individuals have a susceptibility to sugar addiction. And this is very often genetic. The susceptibility to sugar addiction occurs in this way. These children, these young adults, whatever they are, have lower than normal levels of certain brain chemicals. And I'll tell you what the chemicals are right now. Beta endorphin, some people just say endorphins, but there are different kinds of endorphin. And here we are talking about one of them, beta endorphin, dopamine, and also serotonin. So I think of these collectively as brain feel goods. Someone who has lower than normal levels of these is not going to feel Good. No one knows what somebody else's normal is. And these kids certainly don't know. All they know is they just don't feel that good. And then I would say maybe even by accident, because I don't think kids go out looking for ways to make themselves feel better. Maybe by accident, they just discover that there's a link between how they feel and sugar. So they go to a birthday party and they have some birthday cake or they go somewhere else and they have some ice cream or they get a brownie for dessert or whatever it is. And suddenly these kids, these susceptible children get not just a little bit of a lift from sugar, which, which um, someone without the susceptibility might experience. It's just a little bit of a lift. I feel good. And now it's all done and I'm back to normal. But these kids 
come in below normal, then when they have some sugar, they get an exaggerated release of these brain chemicals. So as you can imagine, they now feel whoppingly good. They went from feeling worse than quote normal, unquote, then they feel phenomenally good. They feel fantastic. And as you can imagine, it's very reinforcing. And they may not discover the connection or make the connection right away. But maybe after a few times of eating sugar in some form and experiencing the change in how they feel, they make the connection. And now it's something that they really want. Who would not want to repeat the behavior that takes them from feeling worse than normal to feeling terrific? Why wouldn't they want to repeat that? That that makes sense because in my son's case, and those of you listening, he's given me permission to, to talk about uh, his situation. He's doing so much better than he was, but he would eat spoonfuls of this. And that's just not normal. But I guess in one sense, it was normal for him because of the way he was chemically wired. If that, does that, is that saying it right? Sure. Okay. Sure. So that's, he would eat spoonfuls of sugar and I like my, I have a sweet tooth, but I, I couldn't just sit down and eat spoonfuls of sugar. I would get sick. That's what he did. And now I'm starting to understand, okay, uh, there's a, there's a term that, uh, adoptive parents are familiar with nature over nurture. There's just some things that, uh, the way the child has been born because of their DNA and so forth that you have no control over. We understand that, you know, trauma can occur in the womb, the, the stress or whatever that the birth mother is going through, those chemicals are affecting the child. And I'm thinking there's some connection here as well with that and why the cravings for sugar and hopefully never, it never goes beyond that to other drugs and stuff, but sugar itself can cause a lot of problems too in your health. So uh, keep going, Joan. This is fascinating. Oh, thank you. Well, this is great. Um, so just, I want to keep this simple so your listeners aren't saying this is so tedious. Who wants to hear the rest of it? Because I think it's really important. I think what we're talking about today is really important. This susceptibility to sugar addiction in my dissertation was listed as a working hypothesis that we called sugar sensitivity. And the sugar sensitivity is often found in people with a family history of alcoholism or other addiction, depression, anxiety, or other mood disorders, or even in cases of diabetes, family history of diabetes, hypoglycemia, hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, and possibly obesity. So there are a lot of factors that come into this because of the brain chemicals. And as I said, I'm, I'm keeping it, I'm keeping it simple, but I'll say that they have the sugar and it raises up the beta endorphin to a very high level. That in turn raises up the dopamine to a very high level. And because sugar will trigger a high level of insulin secretion in these people, that will lift up the serotonin to a very high level. So they're just thinking, this is fantastic. I want it. I want it. I want it. And it can become very difficult for them to control and for the people around them who may not understand what's really happening. So 
it, it can influence the kids' behavior and sort of mess them up. Should I use something that casual? Mess them up, uh, even apart from any trauma they may or may not have had. But I want to propose that this, and this is the part that excited me, because when I was doing this research for you for today, but I was thinking that maybe this sugar sensitivity, this susceptibility, uh, excuse me, susceptibility to sugar addiction could explain why some kids, some children experience adoption trauma so much more pronouncedly, so much more profoundly than other kids. Because I think if you took 10 kids, let's say they were all adopted as infants, some of them would experience adoption trauma and some would not. Or maybe I should say it, some of them might have a little bit of of reaction to uh, the adoption, but not all of them. And some would have a very strong reaction to the adoption trauma. That's what was fascinating me. Why does this happen? I don't think it happens in all adopted kids. Why is this happening here? And then what I was thinking is here, we've got kids who might just genetically, you know, and who knows when you're adopting someone, if they have any of these things in their genetics, you know, in their genetic background, they're susceptible to sugar addiction genetically. They're feeling crummier than normal, which I think I'm, I'm proposing and This is speculation on my part, but I hope with all we've talked about so far that it sounds like educated speculation, because I'm thinking this could explain why some of them just have a very strong reaction to the adoption itself, to the trauma of the adoption itself, whereas others don't have such a strong reaction. It's just, I hope it doesn't sound like a little nothing. I think this is a big deal. So that's why I'm very excited that we had a chance to uh, to talk about this and why you uh, why I'm excited that you asked me to uh, have this conversation with you today. This makes sense. Now, in some cases, uh, when you adopt, uh, you are fortunate to have the family history of the birth parents. Not all cases, but uh, in some cases you you are able to get the family history. And that helps in a lot of ways to just understand uh, some tendencies or things that the child is going to need to watch out for, because since they are not yours biologically, there could be some issues that they have to be aware of, some tendencies that could happen or whatever that medical issues down the road. Some of the things you talked about, I'm aware because we do have family history. uh, I do know that my son there was diabetes in the family and there was some obesity in the family. So that is helping me understand why he might have this tendency or why he did have this tendency to crave sugar and had a sugar addiction. If you're an adoptive parent and you do have access to medical histories, that might be something you want to dig into and look or ask questions about. Maybe you're having a relationship with the birth mother prior to the adoption plan being finalized. Maybe that's a time for you to ask questions and so that you could be prepared. Maybe you don't give as much uh, birthday cake or maybe you limit the sugar intake a lot. I know, Joan, you have, um, you've just cut sugar out and you've got a whole different idea of how to what we should be doing regarding sugar because it it can cause a lot of problems. And I'm aware of that in my own life. So 
Uh, could you speak to that just a little bit more? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, okay, I think if, if you're dealing with a child and you know the child's genetic background, as you just described, I'd say avoid giving that child sugar as long as possible. And you don't want the kid to grow up and be a freak. I mean, you want the kid to be able to go out with friends and do normal things. But another thing uh, that you can do is make sure that the child eats protein almost with absolutely everything. So if a child says, I want some cookies, that's great. But you know what? We've got a little leftover chicken right here. Why don't you have a little bit of that right now? And I'm making this up, you know, but I'm just saying, why don't you have a little bit of that? And then we'll have some cookies, you know, that kind of thing. So you're just keeping, because the, what the protein does is provide amino acids, right? In seventh grade biology, we learned that proteins are made of amino acids. They called them the building blocks of protein. But what that does is uh, give the kid the uh, amino acids that will be made into the brain chemicals that we want to raise up to a decent level. Okay. So that's, that's all you're doing there. You're just supplying the brain with what it needs to make what will help to stabilize the child. Um, So protein with virtually everything. And then when that's underway and, and that seems okay, and you know, you can even explain a little bit, to the kid, I suppose. Everyone has to judge for themselves, but just explain, this is better for you. Don't eat, you know, don't eat cookies on an empty stomach. If you're hungry, first have this, then have that. But then you want to add in some good, healthful fats. What are healthful fats? Well, things like nuts. Walnuts are exceptionally good. Um, Almonds could be good. Macadamias could be good. Olive oil, avocado oil. I mean, you know, if, if someone's having any kind of vegetables or salad, putting good, healthful oil on it. These are all stabilizing. So when I talk about stability, what I usually say, especially when I'm working with a nutrition client, like stability is the key word and it ain't sexy, but it's really effective. And so when I get my clients uh, stabilizing, and what I mean by that is stabilizing the brain chemistry, as we talked about with protein and stabilizing the glucose when we, which is what I mean when we're talking about the fats, when they're stable, then I know they're on the right track. And if you can get a kid growing up and even asking, okay, is this gonna, is this going to make me stable or is this going to kind of knock me for a loop? You know, if if they can do it early enough in life, maybe they can just learn to do that for themselves. It's not like you're saying don't have ice cream. You don't want to tell a child not to have ice cream; It'll make them feel kind of bad. But especially when everybody else is eating ice cream. But if you can get the the kid to see that the ice cream is okay after they've had some protein. And if you have vegan parents, I'm going to say, be careful here, because the only way to go, if you're trying to raise your kid as vegan and the kid has a problem with sugar sensitivity, is protein powders. And so then you have to mix like a scoop of protein powder in with some water and drink it on down, you know, or have the kid drink it on down. And that that may or may not work. So you have to you have to figure this out. But vegan, if you have a sugar addicted kid, vegan is not always the best course of action. They really need protein and they really need healthy fats, healthful fats. Well, this is good to know um, because I wish 
we had known this years ago now because we could have tried to get in front of this and maybe it would have helped his trauma not to be as dramatic as it turned out to be. I, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but I'm hoping that parents hearing this today will evaluate uh, maybe child the child's history, the family history, then look at what how they're feeding them and and balance it like you're saying to get this stability that is really necessary for all of us, but especially could be important for adopted children. So this has been just wonderful, Joan. Thank you. I'm glad I'm glad it's helping because I'm having a, I've been having a great time putting it together and talking to you about it today. One thing the audience doesn't know about you. They know that you have a sugar addiction or had a sugar addiction, but they do not know that you were adopted too. Have you put two and two together with that to see if there was some tendencies with your birth family? I had a revelation just within the last couple of days as a direct result of doing this research for today. And I think that I didn't really have anything uh, profound in the way of adoption trauma. I think the trauma that I went through had to do with abuse. Both of my parents were physically abusive and my mother was emotionally and verbally abusive. And some sources say that verbal abuse is a form of emotional abuse, but however you, however you classify it, that was my background. And I think that's where my trauma came from. And so maybe I was not as sensitive to sugar genetically as I thought I was. Maybe I was reacting to the trauma and became addicted to sugar as a result of that. So you've actually, <laughs> you've actually got me on the track of reevaluating my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you not to, I don't want to bring back bad memories or anything like that, but the fact that you have, have understood something about yourself with regard to sugar and sugar addiction and how you have really healed yourself can be a great example for not only adoptive parents and adopted children, but anyone that has uh, issues with sugar. And so, you know, thank you. And your work is, is really needed today because I, I believe, and again, I'm not a doctor or a scientist, but just seeing how sugar can impact my, my personal self and then watching how it impacts others. Um, this is something that needs to be addressed. So um, if there are any, one in the audience who would like to uh, learn more about you or even work with you, because I know you, you take clients. Can you share uh, how they can uh, contact you? And I'll put this information in the show notes as well. Sure. Uh, thank you. My website is lastresortnutrition.com. And you can email me at drjoan, D-R-J-O-A-N, at lastresortnutrition.com nutrition.com. That's perfect. And I'll put the, that information in the show notes so you can just click on those links and you can, uh, can reach out to Joan and uh, she's, she knows her stuff as you can tell. So again, <laughs> thank you so much, Joan, for being with us. Um, this has been very eye opening, and I hope that uh, adoptive parents will uh, take this information to heart and evaluate how they can best parent their children. So again, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I, it was really my pleasure. I hope you'll consider the things that Joan presented today. She has devoted a better part of her life to understanding sugar addiction. 
As with anything that has to do with the health and well-being of your children, it is always best to consult your physician. But Joan has outlined some very uh, scientific reasons why you should be concerned about how much sugar you allow yourself and your children to take. That's all for this episode. Before I go, I would like to make you aware there is a private Facebook group for this podcast. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's a safe environment that we can have conversations about how best to raise our adoptive children. I hope you'll consider joining us. Until next time, this is Tim encouraging you to do what you can now. If this podcast has given you the courage and confidence to face storms in your life, the number one way you can thank me is to leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend about the show. Take a screenshot of this episode and share it in your Instagram stories and tag me at Tim Maudlin. You can also connect with me in my Facebook group, Anchors of Encouragement. So until next time, this is Tim encouraging you to do what you can now.